Colossians chapter 3. So let's take our Bibles and open up to the book of Colossians, the third chapter. And Colossians is sort of in the middle of your New Testament. And it's right before all those T-books. You're gonna, if you hit the T-books, you've gone too far. Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus. And we are going to deal <coughs> with the passage that starts off in verse 18. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Now this is, without doubt, a very difficult passage. Dolly told me that she was not going to come to class today because she knew I was going to deal with this passage. She said, but she loved the teacher so much, she couldn't stay away. Now, so I'm glad you came today. Now, I've spent a long time working on this passage. I'm convinced that there is no way we can understand this passage without understanding what the customs in marriage were in the Roman Empire. If we try to read this verse in 2014 and just throw our own interpretation on it, we're going to miss by a country mile what it really means. Okay? Now, what you need to understand is that in the Roman Empire, they had something called household codes. It was the, These were rules that told people how family life was to be regulated. And in order to understand these household codes, and this is what these verses are. These verses are also what's known as rules or household codes for family management. Only these are Christian household codes. The Roman Empire uh, had a philosophy of family in the first century. The Greco-Roman world put a strong emphasis on well-managed families. That's what they were concerned about. How well a family ran. And uh, both Plato and Aristotle believed that uh, good management of the household was essential for the good operation of, a, of the government. They linked the family and the government together. If families ran smoothly, the government would run smoothly. Now we've heard statements like, as the family goes, so goes the nation. You heard things like that? Well, that was not an American concept, that's a Roman concept. So, as I give you this background information, it's going to bring these scriptures right to life. What you need to understand is that Romans believed that justice was essential to govern the state. Now, they define justice differently than we do. We say justice is getting a fair deal, right? But they said that justice... They define justice as every person in society doing what he or she should be doing in their own rank or their own situation. So husbands should do certain things in their situation. Wives should do certain things in their situation. Governors should do certain, such, certain things in their situation. Every person should be doing 
what their assigned task was. And they believed that everybody had an assigned place or a rank. Everybody had a place in the pecking order. Here's where you belong, here's where you belong, here's where you belong, here's where you belong, and here's where you belong, and that's where you're going to stay. That's called stratification. The Roman Empire had a tremendous hierarchy, starting with Jupiter, the father of all gods, then coming down to the human humanity, the human family, and you had Caesar next in line, and then you had the senators next in line, and then you had these Roman elites, and it went all the way down to the peasants. And everybody knew exactly what their rank was, and everybody knew what their task was, and when people did those correctly, that was called justice. They said justice would prevail. Problems would always happen when you got out of your pecking order. <laughs> in other words, you tried to do something that you shouldn't be doing. Since the family, the Romans believed the family was the basic unit of society, it was essential that the family functioned properly. And that's why Rome had what was known as household codes or rules for family management. And this involved where you stood in the rank of authority. And here's what the Romans said. First came the man in a family. The man is a husband. That would put him in authority over his wife. The man is a father. That would put him in authority over his children. If he owned slaves, the man was a master, and that put him over the slaves. In authority, number one was the man. Then next in ranking came the wife that family. Next in ranking came the children in that family and next came the slaves. The slaves were considered part of the family, the extended family. And man ruled that family. He had unlimited authority. There was nothing he could not do. He was the final word. He was called the pater familialis. Potter means father, familiar's family. He was the father over the entire family. Just like the godfather. Remember the godfather? Oh, yeah. I'm the godfather. You know, the godfather? <laughs> what the godfather said, guess what? Everybody under him did. He was the final word. There was no contradiction. Or guess what? You got it, right? He'd get rid of you. You'd be knocked off. That was it for you. Fathers in the Roman Empire had that same authority. They ruled with iron hands. And uh, all those under them, their subordinates, had no rights. Except the rights that the father gave. The father, if he wanted to, could sell his children. Just sell them to somebody else. Sell them into slavery. If he wanted to, he could put his children to death. If he wanted to, too, he could say, you have to work out here in this yard, this, this uh, pasture, you know, out in the fields. And guess what? They had to go and work out in the fields. That's how powerful the man was in the Roman society. Women basically had no rights. Children had no rights. And certainly slaves had no rights. Women did what their husbands told them to do. Many times they ate alone while the husband 
at a feast. The children and the wife would eat in another room while the husband ate in this room. The woman had to remain faithful, but the husband could have prostitutes. And that's how it ran. And let me tell you, when you read, for example, some of the histories of the Roman Empire like I have, you see that these men had all kinds of relationships going on. The man could divorce his wife without any cause and just put her out on the street, and there she was without any protection. He could scourge his children. He could beat his children. He could do whatever he wanted because his wife and his children and his slaves were considered his property. He owned them. And so Rome put together these codes on how a household should be run, and every person in the pecking order knew exactly what their rank was and what they were responsible to do. Now, when you would read, when you read the household codes of the Roman Empire, you discover that those rules are all addressed to the subordinates. Here's what a wife should do. And they tell the wife what to do, these rules, these codes. Here's what a child should do. Here's what a slave should do. None of the rules are addressed to the man. He has no rules. He's beyond rules. He can do what he wants to do. He's the boss. He's the dictator. He's the tyrant. He's the head of the family. Now, not every man would be an ogre, obviously. That would... People aren't like that. Doesn't mean everybody's going to be a mean godfather type character. But basically, no rules were laid out for him. He could do whatever he wanted to do. So you need to realize that that's the setting for this passage. Uh, Paul is writing to Gentiles. He's not writing to Jews. He's not writing to people who know the laws of Moses, who are under the Old Testament covenant. He's writing to Gentiles in the church. These are people who were pagans that came out of that society that I just talked about. This is how their families were ruled before they became believers. And now they've heard the gospel, they've pledged their allegiance to Jesus Christ, and Paul is writing, and he's saying, now look, I know what your family looks like and how you operate. You need to modify it in this way. And so what he does is he starts laying out some rules. Now I want you to look at the passage there. Okay? Chapter 3, verse 18. I want you to notice a few things. First of all, he's going to limit the man's um, authority. He's going to limit the man's authority. You'll notice that he speaks them to the man... In verse 19, he speaks to the man in verse 21. He speaks to the man in verse 1 of chapter 4. You see that? He's going to address the man. Now, what did I say about the Roman codes? They never address the man, right? Paul's going to address the man, and he's going to limit his authority. He's going to give the man instructions. That's number one. Okay? Number two, before he addresses the man, however, he will address the subordinates. Notice verse 19, or verse 18. Wives, see? Then verse 20, children, see? And then verse 22, bondservants or slaves. He's going to give each one of these categories, wives, children, and slaves, 
one instruction. Now listen to me carefully. Because this is things I don't think you've ever seen when you've read it. He's going to give these subordinates one instruction each. Okay? Then, and these instructions are how to behave within family life. Then what he does is he instructs the husband. After he instructs the wife, look in verse 19. He instructs the husband. Verse 20, he instructs the children. Then what does he do in verse 21? Instructs the father. Do you see that? He instructs the slaves in verse 22. And then in 4 and 1, he instructs the masters. So listen to this very carefully. He gives the subordinates one command or one instruction each. And then he addresses the man three times and he gives him three instructions. So where do you think the real emphasis is on this passage? He's going to try to limit the man and his authority in the affairs of the house. So I want you to know that. Uh, notice that this man is this, has three offices. He's the husband, he's the father, and he's the master. One man, three offices, three positions, three functions, if you want to, and he gets three instructions. In other words... He's instructed three times, and the people under him were instructed one time, which means his instructions are what? He's, his instructions are the same as all the others combined. They get one, he gets three. So that's what you need to see when you're looking at this. Okay? Now, this tells us something about Paul and what his purpose is. What do you think one of his, if I just threw it out now, based on that, what would you think one of his purposes would be? He thinks the man needs some instruction. Wouldn't you agree with that? Average person reading this passage would think, you know something? The woman needs the instruction. The children need the instruction. Paul thinks the man needs the instruction. Why would he assume that the man needs the instruction? Well, obviously, the man's not doing things the way that Paul thinks things should be done. Paul doesn't just throw out instructions for no, like, hey, let me give you an instruction. He gives instructions and commands because he thinks these commands and instructions are needed. Okay? I'm sorry, you men are not going to like what I have to say here. Now listen very carefully. Paul does not have the authority to change society. Do you know that? Paul is not Caesar. Paul is not the Senate. Paul is an evangelist. He has no authority to change society. Okay? But what he is going to do, he's going to try to change the way Christians operate in the family. Look, Paul cannot outlaw slavery in the Roman Empire, can he? He's one man. Can he outlaw slavery in the Roman Empire? No, but you know what he can do? He can tell people who have slaves how to treat their slaves. So notice what he's trying to do. He's trying to move the father, the husband, the man, from this point where he is right now, just converted, just out of paganism, operating according to societal standards, and Paul's going to try to move him 
one, two, three places over, so he operates more like according to Christian standards. But that's what you need to understand as we look at this, okay? So, he is dealing with a situation that he's facing in his time. He is not, let me tell you this, he's not formulating a doctrine of marriage here. He's not saying this is how marriage in 2014 should look. Okay? He's not formulating the doctrine of marriage. He is speaking to a situation in his day that needs to be addressed. And I know that because he's speaking of how masters should treat their slaves in his day, in that situation, and obviously, there's no Christian today that believes in slavery, do you? Huh? No, we don't believe in slavery. But guess what? So he's not telling us that slavery is okay and here's how masters should treat their slaves. He's dealing with a situation in his day. Not just giving you a doctrine of marriage or a doctrine of women or a doctrine of men. He's dealing with an issue of his day. Now with that understanding, let's look at his instructions. Group number one, verse 18. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now the key verb here is the word submit. It is a military term which means to line up and rank under your superior. Under the person uh, who is over you. So if you have rankings in the military, you may have a general, you may have a colonel, you may have, you know, going all the way down the line to the captains, the lieutenants, the sergeants corporals and privates, and guess what? If they had to line up and rank, they would line up under the person who has authority over them. So, Paul tells the women to come under the authority of the man. And this is the structure of marriage in those, those days. Now, a sergeant, for example, is higher than a private, say in the United States Army. Uh, that doesn't mean he is better than the private, does it? Does it mean he's a better person than the private? No, it has nothing to do with that. It just means he's a higher rank than the private. It means when he says jump, the private says how high, right? It doesn't mean that he is smarter than the private, does it? No, there's some pretty dumb sergeants out there. Remember Sergeant Carter? Remember that? I have to say the private under him was a little dumber than he was, so that was going for Paul. But uh, what it simply means is that there is an order in the army that has to be followed in order for there to be, not have chaos, and for there to be order, in a sense. It's the same in everything. I teach at a college. I'm not the president of the college. I'm not the vice president of the college. That doesn't mean the president and vice president are better people than I am. That doesn't mean they're smarter than I am. Just thought I'd throw that out. <laughs> but you know what it does mean? It means they're higher than I am in rank. And therefore, guess what I do? I submit to them. I don't have to agree with their decisions, but I do submit to them. It's the same in the government. Isn't it? There's a president and a vice president. Now, I don't know which one of those two presently are smarter or better than each other. 
But I know there's one that's a president and there's one that's a vice president. One says something, the other one carries it out. I know when I look at Jesus, who says, I and my Father are one. And yet in rank, the Father is above the Son, isn't it? Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus doesn't want to go to the cross, but the Father wants him to go to the cross. So he goes to the cross. He trusts his Father. This is necessary. There has to be ranking, and there has to be submission in order for there to be order and not chaos. Now when it says, wives submit to your husbands, it doesn't say this. Wives be a doormat to your husband. It doesn't mean that if your husband tells you to do something immoral, you should do it. We know all that's assumed. You understand that? That's assumed. It doesn't mean that if he says you can't go to church, you have to listen to him. You don't have to listen to him. In that case, you say, hang it on your beak. You know what that means? That's a Christian way of, of something. That's right. I don't know what that means. So, it's talking about these, these people are now Christians. He's talking about Christian families. They have come out of paganism. But guess what? They don't know all the rules yet. Remember when you just got saved? You didn't know all the things you were supposed to do. That's what we call discipleship. That's why you have Sunday school classes. That's why you have to learn. You don't come out of paganism and become a Christian and suddenly have perfect knowledge and understanding and live the way you're living today, 20 years later. And so these people have to be taught. And so it's assumed that these people want to do what Christ wants them to do. So obviously the husband wouldn't be telling you to do something immoral. You don't have to submit to that. Now look at the object here. Wives, submit yourselves to your own. Your own husbands. Do you see that? Why do you think he has to say submit yourself to your own husbands? Why does he throw that in? Your own husbands. Well, obviously there's a problem here, isn't there? Yeah. The word own there in the Greek is idios. Submit yourself to your idios husbands. <laughs> and now it doesn't mean idiot. It means own. But it's interesting that it looks like idiot, you know? <laughs> so, so you submit yourself to your own husbands. Now why would he say that? Because in the pagan society, women were considered inferior to all men. Whatever a man said to you if you were a woman, didn't matter who it was, you were inferior, and guess what you had to do? Submit. Obey. But in the Christian context, he says, submit yourself to your, or come under the rank, realize your place in the family structure under your own husbands. Now, why would he say that? Well, because they came out of paganism, but there's another reason, I think. In Roman society, Girls got married at the age of 12 and 13. It's hard to believe, isn't it? There are record after record accounts of marriages. Only one record 
so far has been found of a girl in Roman society who got married later than the age 15. The average Christian in Roman days got married at the age of 15. That was, the, that was when they usually got married. They were somewhere 12, 13, 14, 15. After 15, you were an old maid. You know? So it's changed over the years, hasn't it? Now imagine, here's a girl who's gotten married. She's 12 or 13 years of age. Who's lived in a society that says women are inferior to all men and whatever a man tells you to do, you have to do it. And now she marries this guy. He's 30, 32 years old. And that's what we think Mary was. Mary was probably about 14 or 15. Joseph was probably 30 or so. And they get married. And here's a kid. We're dealing with a kid, right? And she feels that she's inferior to all men. And all these men are telling her things to do. And she's just a kid. She doesn't even know what to do. Who do you listen to? She's got to be totally confused. Paul is straightening out that matter. And he is saying to this young lady... Listen, come under the rank, listen only to your own husband. That'll solve the problems real quick. He's the one who, in the Christian way of thinking, is over you, not every man in society. Okay? Now today, women don't get married when they're 12 and 13. We have women getting married when they are in their late 20s or 30s or 40s. They have careers. They get married, and let me tell you something. Some of them have MBAs. Some of them are presidents of colleges and universities. And they have their own mind. They're not like some 12 or 13-year-old girl who has hardly lived and doesn't know how to make a decision. She has to depend upon some man. So, when I say Paul's not laying out a doctrine of marriage, I believe that. I believe he's dealing with a circumstance and a situation of his own day that needs to be dealt with. I think if Paul were living the day where women are getting married when they're 35 years old or 40 years old, his instructions would be different for people in our class, for example, don't you think? I think so. I think his instructions would be different if he was speaking to people you know, that were getting married in their late 20s and 30s and 40s and so on and so forth. So this isn't a doctrine of marriage. This is a situation that he's having to deal with in the context of the Roman Empire of the first century. And then he gives the reason or the warrant or the motivation for coming under the rank of your own husband. He says, as is fitting in the Lord. This is, this is the Christian way of doing it. You've been doing it the pagan way. This is the way, this is what Christ expects. This is the way Christians operate in marriage. You come under the authority of your own husband. Does that make sense so far? Okay, so that's a little little different, right, than you probably heard before. But I think that I'm right. Okay. Would I die for it? Would I give up my year's salary for it? No. But I think I'm right. So you have to decide that, right? I'm just the teacher. You have to decide. It doesn't say students submit to the president, the teacher of the president's class. You know, you have brains. You can think whether it makes sense or not. Okay. Now, look at uh, what am I doing here? Look at now. He comes back and he gives the husbands his first, the man his first instruction. Verse 19. Okay. 
Husbands, love your wives. The key verb there is love. It's a command. They are commanded. This is a positive command. We're going to have a positive and we're going to have a negative command. He says, this is a verb. Love your wives. Be selfless toward your wives. Be sacrificial toward your wives. Uh, uh, you know, serve her welfare. Do what's best for her. Make her number one. Uh, lay down your life for her. That's, there's no greater love than a person would lay down his life for his friend. Lay down your life for her. Protect her. Be, you know, give, cherish her. All the kinds of things that you can think about with the verb love represents. Now, when you see that, husbands love your wives, that's just the opposite of the way Roman husbands treated their wives. You see, that's the context. They treat their wives like a piece of property. You'll do what I say. You serve me. I'll sit back and I'll watch the football game. Hey, I need another beer. Uh, okay, honey, here I come. <clears throat> Especially American men. Aren't they the worst? They want to go out and drink with their buddies. They still want to be little kids. They want their wives to be mothers. Take care of me, mom. I don't know. But anyway, this is just the opposite of the way Roman men operated. They, they operated uh, expecting you know, the wife to do whatever they said. And here, guess what? Paul does something different. He gives them a household code. Wow. That's the positive. Husbands, put your wife's interest before your own, if you want to put it that way. Boy, that's a change for Roman marriage. And now the negative command. And do not be bitter toward them. Well, that's just the opposite of how Roman husbands were. They could just throw their wife out on the street and say, you're finished. You know? Don't be bitter toward them. Don't be hostile toward them. Don't be sharp toward them. Don't be sarcastic toward them. Don't be mean-spirited toward them. What is Paul doing? He, all he's doing is going back to verse 12 there and he's He's talking about those five virtues that we saw last week. Therefore, the elect of God, holy, put on these tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Do you see that? Why do you think Paul is telling this man not to be mean-spirited toward his wife? Don't you think maybe they need that instruction? That he wouldn't even be wasting his breath. So... If you put it in modern day terms, you say, husbands, you vacuum the floor for your wife. Help her out with dinner occasionally. <coughs> Iron your own shirt once in a while. You know, whatever it is. However, you can put just overall just be just be considerate. Can you do that? Just be considerate. So that's the instructions to the husbands. <clears throat> okay, now we come to this next relationship. The man is a father in relationship to his children. First comes the instructions of the children. Here it is. Children, obey your parents. And the word there for parents is uh, could mean both parents. But, um, you know, the, the context here is really not both parents, but fathers. Okay? So, the children are instructed to obey. Now listen to this very carefully. This tells us something. This tells us when this letter was read out loud in the church, which met in a home, around the meal table, 
Guess who was there to hear the letter? The kids were there, that's right. The children were there. That tells us something. It tells us that they were old enough to be Christians. They're eating at this table at the church. They're old enough to worship. But they're young enough that they're still in the Father's house living there. Okay. They've reached an age of accountability. They have the ability to follow this order. And Paul sees them as such an intricate part of the local church that he addresses the children. And he says, you know, obey your parents. Now the word, the key verb there is obey, and it simply means hear and then act upon what you've been told to do. Look at the extent, the scope of this obedience. Children, obey your parents in some things. See, that's what it says, doesn't it? You think that's that would be if it were the modern days translation, or perversion, or whatever. Notice in all things. So why in all things? Because in the ranking, the man, the wife, the children, if the sergeant says, run around the barracks ten times, guess what the private does? But that doesn't make sense. Why should I run around? No, guess what you do? Run around the barracks ten times. Why? Because that's how things operate. If you do what you want to do, when you want to do it, and you want to question it, then there's going to be chaos. There's not going to be order. And so in a family, there's this order. And so the children will obey the parents in all things. You know, clean your room. Take out the dog. Mow the grass. We're modern day children. have sure change over the century. Now, there's a caveat. In all things mean, we mean in all things that are moral. If the father said, I want you to go lie for me. I want you to go steal that loaf of bread over there. I want you to... Of course you don't do that. This is assuming a Christian family that's come out of paganism. And he's saying, that's how you used to do things. No longer do you do them that way. Now, the reason. Look at the reason in verse 20. Why they're to do it. For this is well-pleasing to the Lord. So, it's basically the same thing he said to the wife in verse 18, as fitting in the Lord. So, this is the way you're supposed to do it as a Christian. How did the pagan families run? Operated on different principles. But this is the way, that this is the kind of structure that pleases the Lord. Now, look at the instruction to the man. Verse 21. This is his second instruction. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Don't taunt them. Don't be caustic with them. Don't say something that puts them down. Don't say, why can't you be like... Or as one father in the neighborhood where I grew up said to his son, you no good bum, you'll never make anything of yourself. And you know something? He never had a job his entire life. When I left Maryland, he was nearly 40 years old and still didn't have a job. But he was a genius. But his father put him down so much that he couldn't even function. And so watch out what you say. Words are really can, can hurt. You know, you're no good. If you say that long enough, a child will think that they're no good. And let me tell you, 
if you happen to be a father that's a perfectionist, and I'm speaking as a person who used to be a perfectionist, you're more apt to break that command than any other in the Bible. Because you think you want them to do something a certain way when you want them to do it, and if they don't, guess what? You're critical. And that just breaks their spirit. Or if you're a father who's a tyrant, and you think that your word, you know, is God's word every time, and you start browbeating your children, you're going to hurt your children. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Don't play favorites with your children. Some of you grew up in a family, you know what I'm talking about. How many of you grew up and you thought your parents treated you and your siblings all equally? You treat, in other words, your parents treated all the kids equally. Okay? How many of you thought your parents treated one of your brothers or sisters better than you? They showed favorites. Look at this. How many know your parents showed favorites towards your brothers and sisters? There you go. Look at that. A lot more over there. If you show favorites to your child, your child will think, I'll never, they're going to be bitter. You have to watch out. If you've been, if you marry somebody else who already has kids and now you are a step parent, that you don't treat your own kids differently than you treat your stepchild. Sometimes a couple will get married, maybe the wife will have a kid or two, and then the man and the woman get married, and then they have their own child. And boy, that changes. Or make sure that you don't treat the adopted child differently than you do your own child. Many people have adopted a child and then they end up having the baby themselves. And guess what? That's the, called the Cinderella syndrome, by the way. Where the adopted child, the one that's brought in, is made to do everything, while the natural child is treated like a princess. She gets ballet lessons, this one gets this, she gets it, but the other one has to scrub the floors. It says, don't treat your children that way. Don't provoke your children. Now he gives the reason. Look what he said. Lest, verse 21, they become discouraged. It means lest they lose heart lest they fall into despair, lest they become exasperated, lest, lest you break their spirit. Let me tell you, treating children like this is what causes a lot of kids to run away from home and girls end up on the streets and boys get in gangs. And so Paul is... Why do you think Paul's having to tell the father not to provoke his children? Because that's just what these guys were doing when they were pagans and before they became Christians. So what he's doing, he's laying out this, these household codes. Okay. Now, I don't know what you do if you have a strong-willed child. I had one strong-willed child. And let me tell you, I'm strong-willed myself. Because I'm 
can do. And I had one who, no matter what you said, if you said white, he'd say black. If you said one, he'd say two. If you'd say eat, he'd say no. I said, you'll sit there in the midnight. He'd sit there in the midnight. You would spank him, and he would take the spank. He wouldn't cry. <coughs> totally strong will. I just finally, Lynn and I said, what in the world are we going to do with this kid? You know? And he was only about three <laughs> Finally, we, we said, you know, the only thing he responds to is love. And we had to just reach out our arms and put him around him and just love him and accept him the way he was. This is Hollywood. He was the kind of kid, if you had a pizza, he ate one thing at a time. He'd eat the pepperonis. He'd eat the cheese. <laughs> then he would lick the, you know, the sauce. <laughs> then he would eat the bread. If you had it on a plate, seven different things on a plate, he'd eat all of one. You know, this is just how he was. He had his own mind. This is how God created him. <laughs> and we had to learn to deal with it. So this is how, so we have these instructions. We have instructions to the wife, one instruction. Instruction to the children, one instruction. And then instruction to the man as a husband, instruction to the man as a father. And then we have the instructions to slaves and then to the man as a master, which I think we're going to have to pick up next week. Uh, but let me just say this. I do not believe that this is a model for all the ages. I really don't. Uh, this is a corrective. Paul is giving a corrective uh, to the Roman way of doing marriage for that situation. Let me tell you, if he were here today, he'd see problems in our families now and he'd make some corrections. It'd be just different corrections, but they'd be corrections. So next week we will deal with slavery, and since certainly no one today believes that Christians should have slaves, that passage can't be a model either. So what do you do with it? Well, pastors say, well, this is how an employer should treat their employees. Hey, that's really not fair. That's really not what this is about. So uh, this is why every text that we deal with in the Scripture, in order to get it right, the interpretation right, it must be interpreted in its historical context. And for years, most evangelical pastors and preachers have simply ignored the context and just act like it was written to us in 2014. It was written to them in 61 AD. We have to glean the principles and see how it applies to us. That's our job. But the text itself was written to a particular church in the first century. So we'll pick up with verse 22 next year. Lord, I thank you for this passage that uh, I've had to struggle with this week. I've wrestled with, I've turned it over, I have researched, I have thought through it. I didn't want to just pull something from the past. I wanted to get it right. I wanted to serve your people with a clear conscience, knowing that I did everything in my power to interpret the text correctly. So Lord, help me as I deal with this next passage, which is even more confusing at some points on slavery. Thank you, Lord, for each person in this room. Thank you for their commitment to this class. 
but most of all their commitment to you. In Christ's name, amen.